Peace be with you. Happy Father's Day. Um, thankful for you, dads. And um, I hope today is great. And for those of you uh, where you might be spending more time reflecting on loss or grief of that, my hearts go with you. And um, so whatever you're feeling, it's welcome in the space. I'm glad you're here. For those of us still in the throes of fatherhood, just remind you, please, uh, in, the, in the process of loving and disciplining your children, do not provoke them to anger, <laughs> is what Paul says uh, in Ephesians and uh, 6. And, and in Colossians 3, he says the same thing. Uh, and he says, lest they become discouraged. You know, it's a good word. It's a good reminder. And I, and I think there's various ways for us dads to do that, um, to not provoke children to anger, um, provoke them into massive discouragement. I think there's a lot of ways that we can do that, but one of the really good ways that you can do it is um, to remind yourself to practice the art of, of telling them when you've been wrong. And um, don't be afraid to do that um, because newsflash, you get it wrong sometimes. <laughs> right? I get it wrong sometimes. And so um, now that, of course, sets us up today. We're going to be in Luke 24, um, and it's a great passage, great story on this, that concept. And so I'll, in, the, in the unpacking of the text, you'll understand more of what I mean and how important that is. And so if you... If you got your Bible, turn to Luke 24. We're going to look at verse 13 to 35. Luke 24, 13 through 35. You can obviously follow along on the screens above if you prefer. If you're able to stand for the reading, that'd be great. If not, that's okay. Let's just show an expression of respect for the word here. Here's what Luke tells us. Um, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And uh, while they were talking and discussing together, uh, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then, and then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have just happened here in these days? And he said to them, uh, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and, and, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of, of our company amazed us. They, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels and who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, uh, but him they did not see. 
And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. Uh, But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at um, table with them, he, he took the bread, and he blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on that road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. I've been in a uh, year-long class. Uh, I started in January. I've, I've mentioned it up here before. Uh, it's called. Uh, it's the study of reflective practices. It's it's a, it's a discipline of essentially uh, what that name kind of makes you think. It, it, it's this discipline of of helping someone, caring for someone, kind of like in a counseling context. It's it's the process of going inward on yourself, looking inside, listening to yourself. And, and, and paying attention to what's going on inside of you while you listen. So it's kind of an intensive class on the art of listening. Um, because the reality is, like, when you're trying to listen and understand someone, and, and particularly so when you're listening to try to guide or help them, uh, one of the things you need to realize, it's never a, a, a static deal. It's a dynamic one. Because you're bringing in all sorts of baggage. You're, you're bringing in all sorts of ideas or assumptions, you're projecting things onto them, and it, and it shapes and shades the way that you listen. And then thereby, it shapes and shades the way that you respond. You're like, wow, my mind is blown. I know, imagine me sitting for hours on, <laughs> on hours for day after day with a psychoanalyst uh, learning <laughs> like, you know, all these things about the art of listening and how deeper you can go into it. Um, now, the class began with um, an intensive week, nine-hour, ten-hour days of a lot of lecture, and, um, and then there were moments where we would practice this. So literally sitting down with another individual that I had just met and kind of doing kind of a makeshift counseling exercise with them and then in, in front of the class and the professor. And so um, a- after which, the, you know, the, the professor and, and those in the class would critique you. And so it would go something like this. Um, why did you ask that question? What were you thinking? Well, how, you know, I noticed that when, when he said this or got personal, you kind of got, your body language got awkward and strange, you know? Have you ever noticed that about yourself before? Um, and so there was a lot of that going on. And so naturally, as you could guess, probably, people got defensive. <laughs> you know, I just started this class. Why are you critiquing me? I don't know what I'm doing. That sort of a thing, you know. Um, and at one point, there was a, there, there, I remember the scene that um, 
there was a moment in, where um, or someone in the class got rather heated over the critique that they were receiving. And um, they, uh, you know, the, the barrage of questions coming in at them, and they didn't like it very much. And I remember at one point the, when this took place, the professor kind of jumped up, almost excited, like, like, like he had intentionally, deliberately provoked it, which I think he did in hindsight. And, and he stood up and, and he said, guys, guys, listen, listen, you, you have to understand getting it wrong, getting stuck, getting frustrated, uh, getting bored with someone and conversation. Um, this, this is part of the process. Um, it's inevitable. And you need to learn to reflect on it if you're actually going to get somewhere with them. Like, there's no such thing as bad content. It's all good content. Pay attention. What is it that's happening inside of you? Why are you mad? Why are you sad? Why are you bored with them? Maybe it's more on you than it is on them. And he said this. He said, I'll never get it. He said, do you understand? Mistakes is where the gold is. Are you willing to mine the mistakes? Like, we make them, we reflect on the what and the why of it, and learn things we never would have otherwise. Now, that's a truth for uh, the spiritual life. So much so, like, I think you could make it our, our mission statement, you know? I haven't ran this by the elders. Um, but something like, we love God, we love God here, and we make lots of mistakes... <laughs> And then we reflect on them. It's what we do here. This process of learning um, like this is backed by a lot of good research, by the way. Um, here's what some of the best stuff says, because I've spent a lot of time reading on this. Um, essentially this, people don't really learn when you tell them something. They don't even really learn on a deep level from doing something. They start learning, they start creating new neural pathways only when they have a chance to recall and reflect on what just happened, especially when they've been wrong. That's my summary of some of the research that I've done, and I've stole a lot of this from Michael uh, Stanier and his work, um, if you're interested in that. There's a, a professor and author, David uh, Cooper writer, that said, quote, we, we live in a world our questions create. That's good. That's really good. <laughs> you should remember that. What questions are you asking? Are you asking any questions? I have a question. What, are questions are, what questions do you have right now about God? What questions do you have about your own struggles? What questions do you have about your story? What questions do you have about how your story is fitting into God's story? And are, are you asking any? Are there questions that you want to ask but you don't feel like you can ask because you feel like that would put, put out a, an image in front of your friends that makes you a bit uncomfortable? Like, ah, uh, that will make it seem like I, I, I'm not as far along as I, they think I am. Or is that some of that going on inside of us? You see, like, we, we've been in this series, um, like Brad said, exploring the concept of spiritual doubt. Not, not, not to encourage you into doubt. Like, don't, you know, I don't want that to... 
or worse, we've not been doing this series on spiritual doubt to coerce you into doubting. My hope was to, to, to talk about spiritual doubt so we can normalize it to a certain extent, so that we can take the teeth out of it and you know, bring out these biblical images in the scriptures that we see of spiritual doubt so we can learn how to navigate it well, because I think you can navigate it very poorly. Um, and I think we can learn how to really harness opportunities when we're in places of doubt. Um, spiritual doubt can feel very scary at times, um, but it does not have to be a barrier it can be an invitation. And if you don't get anything from the series, I would like for you to just get that. Like, it, when, you, when you have moments of, like, going, I don't, I'm wrestling with God, or I'm wrestling with this piece of Scripture, it's as much of an invitation than anything. It's an invitation for you. It's a fork. It's a moment for growth. It, it can be a truth that you can go deeper into. But the thing is, is you don't have to take the invitation. And, and sadly, lots of people don't. So the question is, what questions are you asking <laughs> right now and in your own journey? And why are you asking them? And what are you actually after in the question that you're asking? Some of you, like, your faces look, I, I need a break right now. This is too much. I know. Um, you see, I've learned that... Um, to be equally amazed by the questions that God asks in the Bible as the miracles that he performs. Have you ever noticed, like when you read the Gospels, how often Jesus asks questions? Somebody should just read all four narratives and then just count like how many times you see it. Jesus asking questions. I said it a couple of weeks ago, it's worth repeating. When God asks questions, he's not looking for information. He's cultivating insight. He's bringing that which is you know, underneath, out of your awareness, into awareness. He's teaching. He's the most brilliant teacher ever. He tells stories and asks questions. He's leading people into transformation through the process of deep reflection. That's why when he says to his, his, uh, you know, his disciples, but who do you say that I am? I know what they're saying. What do you say? It's questions. The Road to Emmaus story uh, might be one of the most beautiful stories showing how brilliantly Jesus does this. And Luke tells us about two early followers of Jesus, one named Cleopas and one who remains a mystery. Um, names are given in the Gospels as a way of footnoting. For those of you who have been to college, footnoting, you know, that sort of a thing. They didn't footnote back then. They named people. They, it's their way of saying, if you don't believe what I'm saying, you can go ask him. You can go check for yourself. He's still alive. So Luke, undoubtedly, when he wrote this, Cleopas was around. And so it's Cleopas and somebody else. It's, it's Sunday afternoon, and they're walking away from Jerusalem crushed. The doubts in Jesus have manifested now into this slow walk away, uh, back to, who knows, maybe their former life. Think of it this way. Jerusalem, uh, metaphorically, is a faith dream. It's a youthful conversion. 
the idea that, you know, things are going to be well, all well, and there's not going to be pain anymore. Emmaus is the, like, road <laughs> of deconstruction to consolation. I don't think I believe what I originally believed anymore. Along their journey, Luke tells us they are in intense conversation, probably even a debate with each other. And Luke says that they're talking about, this is verse 14, all these things that had happened. Well, what things? Because we read it out of context. Well, the weekend of the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's what they're talking about. This was the, the weekend of Jesus' humiliating crucifixion and the third day resurrection, although for them, they're doubting that that part happened. They definitely know the crucifixion happened. And they didn't stick it out or wait. They just decided to go home. They've had this crazy and puzzling report from the women and a couple of other disciples, which would, later we can find out in other places, Peter and John, that the tomb was empty, but it's not enough for them, so they leave. And so the question they're wrestling with is, what happened, man? Like, we were so pumped about this guy. What happened? How could this be? So meanwhile, instead of, <laughs> it's beautiful and clever and everything about it, I love it, but instead of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus throwing a party at the temple, he quietly goes walking out of town all on the same road as these two individuals. That's how Jesus chooses to spend his time. Verse 15, it says, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near, and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened? And apparently Jesus' crucifixion was such a big deal on the hillside and so humiliating. It would have been impossible for you to be there for that Passover weekend and not known that it had happened, right? And Jesus says, well, What things? <laughs> what things? Oh, the comedy, the irony, the beauty. Jesus isn't looking for information again. Obviously not. He's asking deliberately to cultivate something out of them. Let's, it's, it's, it's his way of saying, let's reflect on this weekend. What, what do you think happened here? To be honest, you know, immediately, like, let's, let's, you, the one thing that you do as a reader of this story, where you get stuck in the story, right, is probably the part where it says they didn't recognize him. Right? Right. It's like, what is, you were literally just with him. <laughs> how is it that you don't recognize him? And I will tell you, honestly, I don't really know for sure. <laughs> Why? What is happening there? You know, there's different, some different theories out there. But one thing that you come across a lot that I love, and, and I am, am going to unpack here a little bit, is just a lot of scholars, a lot of spiritual writers over the centuries have, have surmised something spiritual in what Luke is trying to communicate. To us, Because notice um, that Luke says it this way, quote, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. There seems to be a deliberate method Jesus is taking in bringing them from doubt to certainty. It, it, it's intentional on his part. There's a process to it. So here's the thing. If the resurrection has just happened, and, and, and I believe that it did, 
it means that God did something totally unexpected. That's the thing. And that he came down into our mess, into our broken world. He sacrificed himself in the flesh on our behalf to pay the penalty, the debt that we all have owed for our corruption, for our evil. And that, he's, that God himself has come down and he's absorbed all that evil onto himself. Um, and, and he's imputed, he's given innocence and righteousness to people that didn't deserve it. And, and, and his resurrected body, Jesus' resurrected body, means and meant that God received the payment, that God is satisfied, that we have been brought back to God, that we are reconciled to God, um, that there is now hope, that the curse is not permanent. That, that it means that the, the, this whole thing, uh, this new thing has been started, that death has been defeated, that, that, that sin does not get the last word. Although it still exists here, sin is still here, it is not going to get the final word on God's good creation and on your life. And that a new kind of humanity is being created. I mean, that's what the resurrection meant. Like a whole new kind of genesis has started. Something brand new is here. It's, it's, it, you know, it's deeper than just the physical. It's, there's this birth of, of new people through, through like that spiritual, through, through a heart rebirth. It's the greatest news that's ever, ever hit the planet. Like it's, it's amazing. Um, but Cleopas and his mystery uh, companion are sad. Why? Because that's not the story they've been telling themselves. You might assume that, and they're like, well, they just don't have it all figured out. That's true, but that's not the story. Look at their answer to his question. Um, when, when he says, what, the, what things? And in verse 19, they say to him, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word, bef- word before God and all the people, that's true, yes. And in how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Yes, that's true. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Wait a second. What do they mean there? What does that mean? When they say redeem Israel, they were saying something very different than what Jesus has been saying all along. They were working out of this Old Testament narrative. You know, at that point in time, you realize that Jews were operating in this understanding that they have never really come back from the exile that they were really technically still in the exile, that they were still really an oppressed people. Rome is in charge at this point. And so for them, they're looking for a Messiah, but they're looking for nationalistic freedom and peace. They're looking for a kind of more nationalistic exodus, if you will. Let's come out of the oppression of Rome. Let's get our city back and our temple, and everything's going to be well. This Jesus guy might do it. They were hoping for immediate relief from Rome. And that's not really what they got. (laughs) They were hoping that God was going to come down and crush Rome and give them their city back, but clearly he hasn't done that. The crucifixion didn't look like victory. It looked like failure. So the belief that they had originally constructed in Jesus is now being deconstructed on this road because a suffering, crucified Savior doesn't fit their narrative they were looking for a warlord. This is a slaughtered lamb. It doesn't compute for them. It doesn't fit what they had originally constructed about Jesus. But then Jesus beautifully, what he does here is he beautifully reconstructs a new way of seeing God and trusting him. Now what he's done, 
20, verse 25, and, and, and he said to them in response, Oh, foolish ones, you, slow of heart to believe all the, the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in them all the scriptures and things concerning himself. So that must have been the, the, the Bible study of all Bible studies. Right, like the Bible study of the highest order, Jesus begins going through the entire Old Testament narrative, and what he's been doing, what he was doing, is he's hyperlinking as he went, right? So he's 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 remember this story about Moses? Remember this moment in Exodus? Remember this? You know, remember when Jeremiah said this? Do you remember? And they're going, yeah, yeah, yeah I remember that class, I remember that, and and then he's and he's hyperlinking it, and he's like, do you see? It's about me. It's about this weekend. Like, don't you? And they're like, oh, wow. You know what I mean? My Sunday school teacher was way off. Or whatever they're saying. I don't know. But that's essentially what's taking place. And he's, he's helping them understand in a whole new way. And he's showing them how this seeming failure was actually the unexpected and incredible ironic twist of fate. Uh, that God hasn't come down to save us. And this is important. Essentially, you can sum up what Jesus has done um, in his Old Testament Bible study, what he's done is he's saying, no, no, you don't understand. God, God has not come down. I haven't come down to save you from suffering. I've come down to save you through suffering. That's a, that's a massive shift in your mindset. Like, that's gospel. That's what's taken place. That's, in part, that's the mystery, and in part, that's the stumbling block. What kind of God does that? Redemption has come in a more complete and final way than anyone could have ever possibly imagined. I mean, it's Jesus is saying, look, I did redeem Israel, but, but much, on a much deeper level than you realize, I redeemed the world. The entire creation that's been groaning. And so while listening to, these, them, um, to, to Jesus, they still don't know that it's Jesus, of course, um, they're awestruck by this Bible study, and um, they're reconstructing for the first time so many things that they had originally put together. And so they asked Jesus, who's still incognito, to stay with them for dinner, and I think that's so important. It's like as they open the Word and they're, they're seeking to be open to it themselves, they're like, no, stay with us. Stay here. They urged him strongly to stick it out with them, and so Jesus does, and he takes the form of host, not guest, in the setting. And we read this, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and gave it to them. And ta-da! Their eyes were opened, and now they recognized him. And then Jesus does the crazy stuff that Jesus does. He's poof, I don't know, it's like a smoke, I have no idea. It's, he vanishes from their sight. And they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them and gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road. That's why you have the story. All right? They told the story. This is what happened to us. And how he, Jesus, was known to them in the breaking of bread. Jesus likes to do things around dinner tables. 
this is totally brilliant by Jesus, and it's brilliant that Luke has picked up on it, and he wants to make sure that you see it. Jesus has slowly led them into the discovery, and he's shown them, not just in word, but what Jesus has done is he's shown them indeed that he has reversed Genesis 3. So, um, you, you see, this little meal is Genesis 3 in reverse. If, if you go back there, you'll see the original couple. And what have they done? They've taken an untrusting piece of fruit, and they have taken a bite of it. And what happened? Genesis 3 says their eyes are opened, and what do they see? Shame. Fear. Guilt. <gasps> I'm naked. This couple takes this bread from Jesus... Their eyes are opened, and what is it that they see? Love. Hope. They see Jesus. They see joy. It's Jesus' way, and Luke is doing this. It's his way of saying, yep, yep. Genesis 3, no more. I've reversed it. I fixed it. They're shocked. He poof, vanishes, right? And after seven-mile journey, they go running seven miles back. They're so excited to tell other people about it. Jesus has done what he has promised to do. Jesus has resurrected. So do you sense in all of this, because I know you're not um, a person of antiquity, you're not walking seven miles in your doubt to another town, you know, um, what do you, what, do you see the underlying lesson in this story? You see, the, these people couldn't recognize Jesus because something about the humiliation of the whole thing, something about having a rigid, I would say, rigid, tight, narrow understanding of God is, and how he works, that was a stumbling block for them. And they needed this process, and this is so important for us to all remember. They needed this process of construction. They had to start somewhere. Then they needed this process of deconstructing, pulling it apart. And then they needed this final stage of reconstructing something so that they could go deeper. They needed to believe, then struggle, pull it apart, revisit it, and then reconstruct an idea of God that leads them down deeper trust into deeper discipleship. Their journey, that, that process, their conversation is, is like a metaphor, I think, for how we can doubt our way into deeper fellowship. Um, Ronald Rollheiser said it better than I could, so I'll just read his way of articulating it. He says this, um, that the humiliation of the cross is the deep secret that not only unlocks a proper understanding of Christ, but also unlocks the depth of human wisdom. Moreover, and this is Luke's central point in the story, in our journey of discipleship, we will any number of times have to undergo a certain dynamic of crucifixion and resurrection in our faith. Our vision of faith and hope will be crucified and humiliated. God, Christ, and the church, as we understand them, will die in our experience. 
In the discouragement that ensues, we will be tempted to walk away from our faith, our church, our hope, our Christ, and our God, and towards some place of consolation. But somewhere on that road, as we walk toward consolation, Christ will appear in a new guise, and we will be unable to initially recognize him. Eventually, however, that encounter will restructure our imagination and our faith, so we will recognize Christ in a new and much deeper way, and that recognition will turn us away from the place of consolation, Emmaus, and send us back to our dream of faith and our church, Jerusalem. Youthful construction of the faith sometimes has to be crucified. Because although there were probably parts of it that were really great that you picked up, there were probably some parts that were not great. And they need to die. For, for Roheiser's perspective to be true, I, and, I, and, I, and I believe it can be, and, and it's amazing, but, but for that experience to be your experience, my experience, you need at least two things. One, you need to be willing to be wrong. Some of you are already looking away like, it's not my, that's not my spiritual gift. <laughs> um, you need to be, I'm not saying you're, you, are, you are always wrong. I'm saying you need to be willing to be wrong, dads. You, you, you need to be open to the possibility that maybe God isn't failing you but rather your former beliefs or your current way of living is what's failing you. And you need to be willing to be like, yeah, that's a possibility. Like open to it. The second thing you need is you need the presence of Christ. And the latter, the presence of Christ, is really necessary for the former. (laughs) The ability to be wrong. The ability to be humble. Because if you look in the story, both were there. They would have never recognized had they not had Jesus with them. You see, um, and some people, I think, and I could be wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong. But some people, I think, uh, are deconstructing the claim of the gospel right now. Not because... They're looking for Jesus as he actually wants to present himself, but because they're just looking for an exit. That's it. They're just looking for the off-ramp. And there's a really big difference. There is probably, and this is conjecture on my part, but there's, for some people, there is probably something about the slow, often silent and humiliating way that Jesus saves and the fact that he forces you into that same kind of process of humiliation. There's something about that for many people that seems hopeless and just way too infuriating. And so they just would rather exit. But for some, some some people, some will really struggle at some points in their faith journey they'll begin to walk that road of despair and instead of avoiding Jesus, they'll invite him in. They'll say, I, I want your presence. Like, I want to... They will cry for his presence and his truth and, and in doing so, they will remain open and curious to how maybe they've been wrong, 
maybe their original construction of, of him was a bit off and that it needs to go deeper, that it needs to be more humble, more gentle, more merciful, more loving, more sacrificial like he is than what you originally learned. The beauty of the gospel is that being wrong is always a wonderful opportunity for you when you're genuinely seeking Christ. Like if you're genuinely interested in looking for Jesus, then when you are wrong, it's like buckle your seatbelt, man. Great things are about to happen to you. Because he will always meet you there and he will open your eyes. Now, if you don't realize, like there's a word for that in the Bible. It's called repentance. That's what repentance is. It means to change your mind, to turn around from not only sin, but these wrong ideas that you have about God and, the, and what he wants for you and the kind of life he wants you to live. And Repentance never leads you away from God. It leads you deeper into God every time, every time. And but repentance, and, and, and this just needs to be said, repentance is terribly void in a life that's more committed to being right than finding what is right. Some people only want to be right. They're not actually interested in doing what is right. Repentance is saying, I don't, I don't care if I'm right. I just want to find what is truth, what is good. That's what real repentance is. Even if it means you look humiliated. And God is like, now you're ready. Now you're ready. Welcome to transformation. But some people don't change because of this, this right here. They say things. They claim a God. They claim the crucifixion. They claim the resurrection. But there is no repentance. Repentance does not come to people who are always overconfident in their self and always rigid in their thinking. It's the irony. Repentance comes from people saying, this is what I believe, but I'm open to being wrong because God is in charge, not me. He writes the narrative, not me. And maybe I have drugged something into the narrative that I just really want. And repentance doesn't come unless we want Jesus around, <laughs> you know? Unless we want him at our table and in our hearts. And so as, as we close, I don't know for you where you're at in your journey. We're all in different places. And some of us are not, don't have a doubt in our mind. And I don't want you to feel discouraged by that. And some of you do. And it's scary. And you're going to be okay if you look for Jesus. If you continue to open the word. I would just say this. We all... To help us, lead us through and into more repentance and more repentance, I would just say we need community that's reflective, not just community. Some of you are like, yeah, we know we need community. I'm like, no, you need reflective community. You need community that talks about doubts, fears, angers, sadness, and maybe what has God up to in your life. So you need reflective community, the way these two disciples were reflecting with each other. You need, you need honesty with your emotions, you know? If you're sad, you're sad. If you're angry, you're angry. You need the word, like, to open it. Look for Jesus in the word. 
And here's the thing, when, you, when you're looking at your emotion, when you're talking about your life, and when you're opening the word, here's a good thing that you should always practice. Pray for the presence of Christ. Say, here, this is what I want to do. I want to open your word, and I want you to show up. And watch what happens. Watch what happens. Pray for that when you open your Bible. Pray for that when you are with your friends. Be with, here with us, God. And pray that this morning as you come to take communion. I want your presence. I want my eyes to be opened. What is it that I don't see about myself? What is it that I don't see about the world? And let's trust that in his own good timing, he will reveal himself. This bread, we practice this just the way Jesus has taught us. This bread represents Christ's body broken for us. And this cup of wine represents the cup of the new covenant in his blood. And so we take a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice, celebrating, remembering, proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Take the time that you need this morning to pray and reflect. Um, We're glad you're here. If you're not a believer, glad you're here. If you're in doubt, glad you're here. If you have questions, please come ask. Let us pray. Father, thank you this morning for the story that you've kept and you've preserved for us on what it means to be sad, what it means to be struck down, to have former visions crucified. But there is such hope in you and that when we walk away at times uh, discouraged, you come looking for us. And that is good news. May we all be honest with ourselves this morning as we come to the table. May we be honest about our sins, about our sorrows, about our struggles. And may you show up in a real way, in a tangible way. Father, may you please show up as we take this meal. It's in Christ's name. Amen.